Section two of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen. By Thomas Babington Macaulay, Section 2. In the cases which have been mentioned, all parties seem to have agreed in thinking that some public reparation was due. But the fiercest passions both of Whigs and Tories were soon roused by the noisy claims of a wretch whose sufferings, great as they might seem, had been trifling when compared with his crimes. Oates had come back, like a ghost from the place of punishment, to haunt the spots which had been polluted by his guilt. The three years and a half which followed his scourging he had passed in one of the cells of Newgate, except when on certain days, the anniversaries of his perjuries, he had been brought forth and set on the pillory. He was still, however, regarded by many fanatics as a martyr, and it was said that they were able so far to corrupt his keepers that, in spite of positive orders from the government, his sufferings were mitigated by many indulgences. While offenders, who, compared with him, were innocent, grew lean on the prison allowance, his cheer was mended by turkeys and chines, capons and sucking pigs, venison pasties and hampers of claret, the offerings of zealous Protestants. When James had fled from Whitehall, and when London was in confusion, it was moved, in the Council of Lords which had provisionally assumed the direction of affairs, that Oates should be set at liberty. The motion was rejected, but the jailers, not knowing whom to obey in that time of anarchy, and desiring to conciliate a man who had once been, and might perhaps again be, a terrible enemy, allowed their prisoner to go freely about the town. His uneven legs and his hideous face, made more hideous by the shearing which his ears had undergone, were now again seen every day in Westminster Hall and the Court of Requests. He fastened himself on his old patrons, and, in that drawl which he affected as a mark of gentility, gave them the history of his wrongs and of his hopes. It was impossible, he said, that now, when the good cause was triumphant, the discoverer of the plot could be overlooked. Charles gave me nine hundred pounds a year. Sure, William will give me more. In a few weeks he brought his sentence before the House of Lords by a writ of error. This is a species of appeal which raises no question of fact. The lords, while sitting judicially on the writ of error, were not competent to examine whether the verdict which pronounced Oates guilty was or was not according to the evidence. All that they had to consider was whether, the verdict being supposed to be according to the evidence, the judgment was legal. But it would have been difficult even for a tribunal composed of veteran magistrates, and was almost impossible for an assembly of noblemen who were all strongly biased on one side or on the other, and among whom there was at that time not a single person whose mind had been disciplined by the study of jurisprudence, to look steadily at the mere point of law, abstracted from the special circumstances of the case. 
In the view of one party, a party which even among the Whig peers was probably a minority, the appellant was a man who had rendered inestimable services to the cause of liberty and religion, and who had been requited by long confinement, by degrading exposure, and by torture not to be thought of without a shudder. The majority of the House more justly regarded him as the falsest, the most malignant, and the most impudent being that had ever disgraced the human form. The sight of that brazen forehead, the accents of that lying tongue, deprived them of all mastery over themselves. Many of them doubtless remembered with shame and remorse that they had been his dupes, and that, on the very last occasion on which he had stood before them, he had by perjury induced them to shed the blood of one of their own illustrious order. It was not to be expected that a crowd of gentlemen under the influence of feelings like these would act with the cold impartiality of a court of justice. Before they came to any decision on the legal question which Titus had brought before them, they picked a succession of quarrels with him. He had published a paper magnifying his merits and his sufferings. The Lords found out some pretense for calling this publication a breach of privilege, and sent him to the Marshalsea. He petitioned to be released, but an objection was raised to his petition. He had described himself as a doctor of divinity, and their lordships refused to acknowledge him as such. He was brought to their bar, and asked where he had graduated. He answered, at the University of Salamanca. This was no new instance of his mendacity and effrontery. His Salamanca degree had been, during many years, a favorite theme of all the Tory satirists from Dryden downwards, and even on the continent the Salamanca doctor was a nickname in ordinary use. The lords, in their hatred of Oates, so far forgot their own dignity as to treat this ridiculous matter seriously. They ordered him to efface from his petition the words, Doctor of Divinity. He replied that he could not in conscience do it, and he was accordingly sent back to jail. These preliminary proceedings indicated not obscurely what the fate of the writ of error would be. The counsel for Oates had been heard. No counsel appeared against him. The judges were required to give their opinions. Nine of them were in attendance, and among the nine were the chiefs of the three courts of common law. The unanimous answer of these grave, learned, and upright magistrates was that the court of King's Bench was not competent to degrade a priest from his sacred office, or to pass a sentence of perpetual imprisonment, and that, therefore, the judgment against Oates was contrary to law, and ought to be reversed. The Lord should undoubtedly have considered themselves as bound by this opinion. That they knew Oates to be the worst of men was nothing to the purpose. To them, sitting as a court of justice, he ought to have been merely a John of Stiles or a John of Noakes. But their indignation was violently excited. Their habits were not those which fit men for the discharge of judicial duties. The debate turned almost entirely on matters to which no allusion ought to have been made. Not a single peer ventured to affirm that the judgment was legal. But much was said about the odious character of the appellant, about the impudent accusation which he had brought against Catherine of Braganza, 
and about the evil consequences which might follow if so bad a man were capable of being a witness. "'There is only one way,' said the Lord President, "'in which I can consent to reverse the fellow's sentence. "'He has been whipped from Aldgate to Tyburn. "'He ought to be whipped from Tyburn back to Aldgate.' "'The question was put. Twenty-three peers voted for reversing the judgment, thirty-five for affirming it. "'This decision produced a great sensation, and not without reason.' A question was now raised which might justly excite the anxiety of every man in the kingdom. That question was whether the highest tribunal, the tribunal on which, in the last resort, depended the most precious interests of every English subject, was at liberty to decide judicial questions on other than judicial grounds, and to withhold from a suitor what was admitted to be his legal right on account of the depravity of his moral character. That the Supreme Court of Appeal ought not to be suffered to exercise arbitrary power under the forms of ordinary justice was strongly felt by the ablest men in the House of Commons, and by none more strongly than by Summers. With him, and with those who reasoned like him, were, on this occasion, allied many weak and hot-headed zealots who still regarded Oates as a public benefactor, and who imagined that to question the existence of the Popish plot was to question the truth of the Protestant religion. On the very morning after the decision of the peers had been pronounced, keen reflections were thrown, in the House of Commons, on the justice of their lordships. Three days later, the subject was brought forward by a Whig privy councillor, Sir Robert Howard, member for Castle Rising. He was one of the Berkshire branch of his noble family, a branch which enjoyed, in that age, the inenviable distinction of being wonderfully fertile of bad rhymers. The poetry of the Berkshire Howards was the jest of three generations of satirists. The mirth began with the first representation of the rehearsal, and continued down to the last edition of the Dunciad. But Sir Robert, in spite of his bad verses, and some foibles and vanities which had caused him to be brought on the stage under the name of Sir Positive at all, had in Parliament the weight which a staunch party man, of ample fortune, of illustrious name, of ready utterance, and of resolute spirit, can scarcely fail to possess. When he rose to call the attention of the Commons to the case of Oates, some Tories, animated by the same passions which had prevailed in the other house, received him with loud hisses. In spite of this most unparliamentary insult, he persevered, and it soon appeared that the majority was with him. Some orators extolled the patriotism and courage of Oates. Others dwelt much on a prevailing rumor, that the solicitors, who were employed against him on behalf of the crown, had distributed large sums of money among the jurymen. These were topics on which there was much difference of opinion, but that the sentence was illegal was a proposition which admitted of no dispute. The most eminent lawyers in the House of Commons declared that, on this point, they entirely concurred in the opinion given by the judges in the House of Lords. Those who had hissed when the subject was introduced were so effectually cowed that they did not venture to demand a division, and a bill annulling the sentence was brought in, without any opposition. The lords were in an embarrassing situation, 
to retract was not pleasant. To engage in a contest with the lower house, on a question on which that house was clearly in the right, and was backed at once by the opinions of the sages of the law, and by the passions of the populace, might be dangerous. It was thought expedient to take a middle course. An address was presented to the king, requesting him to pardon Oates. But this concession only made bad worse. Titus had, like every other human being, a right to justice. But he was not a proper object of mercy. If the judgment against him was illegal, it ought to have been reversed. If it was legal, there was no ground for omitting any part of it. The commons, very properly, persisted, passed their bill, and sent it up to the peers. Of this bill the only objectionable part was the preamble, which asserted, not only that the judgment was illegal, a proposition which appeared on the face of the record to be true, but also that the verdict was corrupt, a proposition which, whether true or false, was not proved by any evidence at all. The lords were in a great strait. They knew that they were in the wrong, yet they were determined not to proclaim, in their legislative capacity, that they had, in their judicial capacity, been guilty of injustice. They again tried a middle course. The preamble was softened down. A clause was added which provided that Oates should still remain incapable of being a witness, and the bill thus altered was returned to the commons. The commons were not satisfied. They rejected the amendments and demanded a free conference. Two eminent Tories, Rochester and Nottingham, took their seats in the painted chamber as managers for the lords. With them was joined Burnet, whose well-known hatred of popery was likely to give weight to what he might say on such an occasion. Summers was the chief orator on the other side, and to his pen we owe a singularly lucid and interesting abstract of the debate. The lords frankly owned that the judgment of the court of King's Bench could not be defended. They knew it to be illegal, and had known it to be so even when they affirmed it, but they had acted for the best. They accused Oates of bringing an impudently false accusation against Queen Catherine. They mentioned other instances of his villainy, and they asked whether such a man ought still to be capable of giving testimony in a court of justice. The only excuse which, in their opinion, could be made for him was that he was insane, and, in truth, the incredible insolence and absurdity of his behavior when he was last before them seemed to warrant the belief that his brain had been turned, and that he was not to be trusted with the lives of other men. The lords could not, therefore, degrade themselves by expressly rescinding what they had done, nor could they consent to pronounce the verdict corrupt on no better evidence than common report. The reply was complete and triumphant. Oates is now the smallest part of the question. He has, your lordships say, falsely accused the Queen Dowager and other innocent persons. Be it so. This bill gives him no indemnity. We are quite willing that, if he is guilty, he shall be punished. But for him, and for all Englishmen, we demand that punishment shall be regulated by law, and not by the arbitrary discretion of any tribunal. We demand that, when a writ of error is before your lordships, 
you shall give judgment on it according to the known customs and statutes of the realm. We deny that you have any right, on such occasions, to take into consideration the moral character of a plaintiff or the political effect of a decision. It is acknowledged by yourselves that you have, merely because you thought ill of this man, affirmed judgments which you knew to be illegal. Against this assumption of arbitrary power, the commons protest, and they hope that you will now redeem what you must feel to be an error. Your lordships intimate a suspicion that Oates is mad. That a man is mad may be a very good reason for not punishing him at all, but how can it be a reason for inflicting on him a punishment which would be illegal even if he were sane? The commons do not comprehend. Your lordships think that you should not be justified in calling a verdict corrupt which has not been legally proved to be so. Suffer us to remind you that you have two distinct functions to perform. You are judges, and you are legislators. When you judge, your duty is strictly to follow the law. When you legislate, you may properly take facts from common fame. You invert this rule. You are lax in the wrong place, and scrupulous in the wrong place. As judges, you break through the law for the sake of a supposed convenience. As legislators, you will not admit any fact without such technical proof as it is rarely possible for legislators to obtain. This reasoning was not and could not be answered. The commons were evidently flushed with their victory in the argument and proud of the appearance which Summers had made in the painted chamber. They particularly charged him to see that the report which he had made of the conference was accurately entered in the journals. The lords very wisely abstained from inserting in their records an account of a debate in which they had been so signally discomfited. But, though conscious of their fault and ashamed of it, they could not be brought to do public penance by owning, in the preamble of the act, that they had been guilty of injustice. The minority was, however, strong. The resolution to adhere was carried by only twelve votes, of which ten were proxies. Twenty-one peers protested. The bill dropped. Two masters in chancery were sent to announce to the commons the final resolution of the peers. The commons thought this proceeding unjustifiable in substance and uncourteous in form. They determined to remonstrate, and Summers drew up an excellent manifesto in which the vile name of Oates was scarcely mentioned, and in which the upper house was with great earnestness and gravity exhorted to treat judicial questions judicially, and not, under pretense of administering law, to make law. The wretched man, who had now a second time thrown the political world into confusion, received a pardon, and was set at liberty. His friends in the lower house moved an address to the throne, requesting that a pension sufficient for his support might be granted to him. He was consequently allowed about three hundred a year, a sum which he thought unworthy of his acceptance, and which he took with a savage snarl of disappointed greediness. From the dispute about Oates sprang another dispute, which might have produced very serious consequences. The instrument which had declared William and Mary king and queen was a revolutionary instrument. It had been drawn up by an assembly unknown to the ordinary law, and had never received the royal sanction. It was evidently desirable that this great contract between the governors and the governed 
this title-deed by which the king held his throne and the people their liberties, should be put into a strictly regular form. The Declaration of Rights was therefore turned into a Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights speedily passed the Commons, but in the Lords difficulties arose. End of Section 2